is a well known though possibly scandalous fact that I love the Western movie Tombstone. I'm fascinated with the relationship between Wyatt Earp, the zipped up, uh, hardly says a word, straight as an arrow lawman, and Doc Holliday, the uh, gambler, gunslinger, uh, generally loose guy, dying of tuberculosis. And in Tombstone, there's a great scene where right after some gigantic shootout, uh, Doc Holliday is almost passed out on the ground, and he's hacking up from his tuberculosis, horrible cough, and one of the guys says, Doc, what are you doing out here? You ought to be at home in bed. Doc, played by Val Kilmer, says, Wyatt Earp is my friend. And the fellow rolls his eyes, he says, I've got lots of friends. And the camera cuts close, and you see this lost look on Doc's face. And he says, I don't. Kind of captures what I'd like to stress for us this morning. One man has many friends, none worth risking their life over. One guy has only one friend, and he'll risk it all for him. Our text, Proverbs 18:24, reads, Someone with many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, closer than kin. Now, over a hundred times in the Bible, a variety of Hebrew words get translated friend. And we generally think rightly of friendship as a good thing. Well, Proverbs 18.24 puts its saying about friendship in a trio of sayings that address marriage, money, and friendship. Really interesting little package there. And Proverbs 18.24 lays out for us that on the one hand, there is a kind of friend you can have too many of. Even is a good thing. You can have too many. And it leads to problems. And on the other hand, there's a kind of friend that there are very few of. In fact, this verse only envisions one who is closer than family. So I first want to look at too much of a good thing. The first half of the proverb uses the most common Old Testament word for an associate or a colleague or a neighbor or, yes, a friend, the word re'ah. And it indicates really any kind of companion, a neighbor, a colleague, a peer, an associate, a friend, a lover, anybody can be your rea. When it says love your neighbor as yourself, this is the term that is used. Um, and wow, I got my pages mixed up. The most, it's the most all-encompassing word so that we even read the jarring statement, if a man murders his friend, which probably means his neighbor in this case. Uh, another passage talks about committing adultery with the wife of one's friend. Again, probably talking about just someone who happens to be in the community. Most of the time, it just refers to the people who are acquaintances by the sheer accidental circumstances of life. And like I said, it's the one used in love your neighbor as yourself, meaning we should show the same compassion and care for anybody who happens to be within our reach as we would for ourselves. But now the Hebrew text says something that's hard to swallow. 
it pointedly says it's possible to have too many of these. It's easy to surround ourselves with relationships that are cordial and congenial, but not really intimate, not really warm, not really committed. Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah just before the Babylonians rolled over Jerusalem and destroyed it, he said, your close friends have misled you and overpowered you. While your feet were stuck in the mud, they ran off. The outcome of a life characterized by too many of these kinds of friendships is captured in the word that the translation says, uh, renders as comes to ruin. Now, a little bit of grammar here. The stem of the word really means something like to shatter, to smash, or to burst. And ironically, maybe intentionally, it also looks a lot like the word used for friend. So that some translators, clueless when it comes to puns, translate something like people who play at being friends. But what it's really getting at is there's a resonance between the word for friend and the word for ruin. And our word then is subjected to a grammatical treatment that refers to the damage that one inflicts on one's self. So a person with too many friends will blow their life up. It's used in Isaiah of the ground breaking up in an earthquake. Somebody who fills their lives with mere acquaintances, people who are merely nice, fun to hang out with, but not really committed to us. Ultimately, these people find themselves torn apart, ripped in different pieces and directions because they've scattered their loyalties too widely. You know, there are a lot of people who have great social skills. They can enter into a room and own it. They can surround themselves with jovial company, but though they have social skills, they do not have relationship skills. Nobody is finally very committed to them, devoted to them, and when things fall apart, their companions vanish. This is a challenge to us to examine our own relationships. Are our lives full of mere acquaintances, none of which go very deep? Are we good at socializing, but unskilled and impoverished at cultivating the mutual devotion that makes for genuine friendship? So that's too much of an okay, a good thing. Let's look at the second half of the verse now, because the proverbialist will give us an alternative because we probably don't have enough of the right thing. The second half of the proverb says in most English translations, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the word brother, when it's used in Hebrew, really just means kin. Almost anybody you're related to can be your brother or kin. So I'm gonna use the word kin here because it covers more ground. Now what's used here is not the normal word for friend. Rather, it is based on a verb that normally is translated love. There is one who loves, who adheres more closely than kin. Now this word gets used periodically to refer to friends, but it's not very common. It's hard to find it really in the Old Testament. Abraham's relationship with God is characterized this way in a couple of passages. It points to a very distinctive kind of bond 
of this friend who sticks closer than kin. So this language about sticking closer than kin, if you've been in my classes, practically any of them, pick one at random, you've probably heard a lecture on Israelite tribal culture. Because Israel's life was built around the concentric circles of family relationships and the obligations that those generated. So that in an ancient uh, clan or tribe-based society, every relationship is determined by your kinship connection. And this creates obligations, and it also creates legitimate expectations. And so these various ob ob obligations include vengeance. If somebody offs you, you can know that there's somebody who's going to pull that gun belt off the hook, get on their horse, and go after whoever did that to you. In a society with no police, it's important to know that that would happen. Also, marriage. If you suddenly die and your wife is left stranded, she will be incorporated into the family. Uh, and then that whole theological world that we call redemption comes from this world of the tribe and the extended family and the clan, that you have a relative who will get you out of debt get you out of jail, get you out of trouble, and get your land back if it's lost in some stupid deal you might have made. Somebody who will look after you. Now, in Israel, with the rise of the monarchy and a centralized government, this began to change. The kings wanted people's loyalties to be focused on the state, and so they intentionally worked to undercut these tribal and family loyalties. All the hundreds of farming villages all over Israel during the time of the judges vanished by the time of Solomon, and the cities began to grow. And so young adults working in the service of the fast-expanding central government found themselves surrounded not by cousins and uncles and siblings and village mates who would naturally look after them in trouble, but by people like them, people trying to get ahead, trying to win the favor of a bureaucrat or win the ear of a palace official, seeking advancement. Congenial? Sure. Committed? Not likely. The neighbor, then, just becomes an associate, a peer with no sense of obligation. And this is the type of person the book of Proverbs addresses, the young adult seeking to serve in some sort of public capacity. And the universal cry of the alienated, urbanized, post-family person is, does anybody care for my soul? And the answer is no. Nobody in that crew cares for your soul. And so Proverbs says, you better find somebody who does. And it says there's hope. There is one who loves, who stays closer than kin. What kind of friend is this? And I want to say it ahead of time, the Proverbs writer's not thinking God here. Okay? Oh, God. The Proverbs writer knows you need a person in your life. And so the Proverbs writer lays this out in this word to love. Now, Hebrew is like English. They're stuck. They've got one word for love. It covers everything. And so you've got to be real careful. You don't just go packing it all together. So I look for uses of this word that did not involve romance, did not involve pizza, 
uh, did not involve all of the other loves. What are the places where it's used to describe these sort of uh, social, non-romantic types of relationship? And I was surprised. It always involves choice. The person you love is somebody that you've chosen. And this is a love that makes a decision. The rea is a friend of proximity. Whoever shows up, yeah, okay, you're my friend, you're my neighbor. But the ohave, the word used here, is the friend who chooses us. And it has a strong association in the ancient Near East with treaties and covenants and alliances and oaths. This is a word surrounded by the notion of oath and promise. Commitment, not congeniality. And so this is a friend who knows the meaning of dedication. Very different from what we normally think of love, isn't it? We think of it mainly as an emotion. But in the, the ancient world also saw in it an element of promise-keeping and oath-making. And then it says this friend sticks closer than a brother. And we want sticky friends. The term used here in Hebrew is wonderful because it sort of embodies everything that we wish you would not do when you're doing word study, but they all work on this word. It starts off physically just to mean stick, like mud sticks to your hand, a solder joint in chainmail armor that sticks, a building that adjoins another, it sticks. Uh, disease, we're told, sticks to the body. But then it's used of Ruth sticking to Naomi. And it's not just that she holds him. She swears an oath. Do you remember that? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you die, that's where I die. That's an oath that she takes, having clung to him. And then in Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore, a man leaves father and mother and sticks commits himself to his wife, and they too become one flesh. And the term one flesh actually means kin. These two people unrelated by birth make such a dedication to each other that they become kin in their commitment one to another. It is a powerful term of loyalty and commitment and devotion. It's used of commitments to gods, any god. Take your pick. You can stick to pagan gods or you can stick to Yahweh, but either way it involves a powerful sense of devotion and commitment. In a world where we have no kin to stand with us, nobody who will naturally care for our soul, no protective network of extended family to lock arms around us in a crisis and stand with us until the darkness passes. In that kind of world, Proverbs calls for a level of friendship that amounts to choosing to have family-level commitments for people who are not blood kin to us. And it makes it a priority to find people like that who will be committed to us. Now this word for friend, the one who loves, appears in one other place in Proverbs, and it's one that's not going to be popular in today's world because what we want our friends to do is validate us. We want our friends to say, well, of course you're right. Of course you were justified. Of course that's fine. Everything you did is great. We want them to celebrate us, validate us, however misguided, dysfunctional, and downright evil we might be. 
But in Proverbs 27, 6, do you know what it says about the ohave, the one who loves? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Have you got a friend who loves you enough to wound you? These are wounds of rebuke, reproof, correction, and they are often bruising. Proverbs is full of calls to be open to rebuke and reproof. We are called to love correction, to love discipline, to embrace rebuke. The person who validates us is not doing us a favor, however affirming it may feel at the moment. Proverbs says a wise person will pick friends from among those who will correct and rebuke them. Proverbs tells us, do not reprove a scoffer. They'll hate you. Reprove a wise person, and they will love you. It's funny, you know, I do really love people who make me feel like I'm important, smart, um, people who validate me, celebrate me. But Proverbs says, wise people love those people who reveal how much they still need to grow. Now, a true friend will not harm us, but they will not be afraid to hurt us if that's necessary for our growth. Our response to those whose painful words of reproof is the best measure of our own wisdom and our own godly maturity. Now, I can't leave this without pointing out one other thing. And I was arrested by the fact that there's, that this, the one who loves you is in the singular. And even though in Proverbs it's a human, I can't help but remember that the New Testament does some interesting things with the word friend. The New Testament does periodically speak of Jesus as our brother, but I immediately thought of that passage where Jesus, they say, your mother and your brothers and sisters are out there, they want to see you. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? The one doing the will of my father. I am more kin to someone faithful to the will of my father than I am to the womb that brought me into the world and the others who share my DNA. Because there's a deeper DNA than just blood descent. John's gospel goes even farther. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That was radical in a world in which such loyalty was really conditioned on familial ties. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. The servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us his friends, and he shows the extent of his friendship by laying down his life for us. And he also, in his friendship, confides in us, shares the intimate details of his purposes and plans with us. And he shows us what it means to be his friends and friends to one another, laying down our lives for Jesus and for one another. How can we ever know this kind of friendship until we have first discovered the genuine friendship of Jesus?
Are we a true committed friend of Jesus or just one of his hangers-on? You know, a lot of people cheered for him going into Jerusalem. And then when it was time for his trial, they vanished and yelled, and others yelled, crucify him. One with a lot of friends can come to ruin. Jesus certainly knew. The Southern author Flannery O'Connor, now if you ever get tired of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, Flannery O'Connor is the cure. <laughs> she once said of the South that it is not really Christ-centered, we are merely Christ-haunted. And then she went on to say, here in the South, Jesus has many fans, but not many friends. Does Jesus have friends with us? And what are we doing in our relationships? Are we just hanging out? Or are we finding deep relationships of commitment and devotion? And are we pursuing that devoted, intimate bond of friendship with Jesus that only comes with going all in for the best thing and doing his will as our consuming passion. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,